uh, this band was up to, so relatively cool weather while it's uh, Alabama summer hot <laughs> <laughs> and Alabama summer humid. So we're entering our last two uh, studies in Deuteronomy because um, next week we're going to combine chapters 32, 33, and 34 because I think 32 is the Song of Moses. We're just going to kind of give a summary of that. And then I think 33, Moses gives his blessings <laughs> to the tribes. And then 34 is the death and burial of Moses. So um, we'll, we'll do the last three chapters uh, next week. Uh, so tonight we're looking at chapter 31, and these are some of the final instructions uh, for Moses. He's going to give uh, charges to the people, to Joshua, and also to priests. So we're entering the final stage of Moses' life. Uh, that we began reading all the way back in the book of Exodus. Um, and so we're going to pray and ask the Lord's help and go to our lesson tonight. So Lord, thank you for the word. Thank you for blessing us to be here tonight uh, to study your word together. It's always refreshing and encouraging to get to you. Lord, we expect nothing less tonight, nothing less tonight than to Hear from heaven. Refresh us by your word. Fill me with your spirit as I teach this text. And Lord, send your spirit to give us wisdom and understanding and illumination so that we may know how to live by your words and obey you and please you in our obedience to you. In Christ's name, amen. amen. So, Moses is 120 years old, as it says here in the opening part. So, we're going to look at this. Um, I think it's about three main sections. We're going to look at the first um, eight verses because he's going to give his speech and then he's going to encourage Joshua. So it says here, uh, Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel. And he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I can no longer go out and come in. Also, the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And the Lord will do to them as he did to Sihon and Og, the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. The Lord will give them over to you, that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So let's look at those first six verses. So Moses He's 120 years old, as we see in the opening here. Now, Moses is not limited by his physical condition. Um, uh, in our days, 120 is old. In biblical days, 
120 wasn't necessary, though. Uh, but it was, though. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kind of. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so, Moses wasn't limited by his age because if you think about it, Moses climbed to the top of the mountain, as you saw back in the book of Exodus. Uh, you know, when he went up to the mountain to receive the law, that was about 40 years before that. He was 80 years old. He was still able to uh, traverse the mountain. So, you know, he had to be in pretty good uh, shape and condition uh, to be able to do that. But he could no longer go out and come in and going out in into the promised land because uh, God had distributed that he would not enter the promised land. And if you look at the book of Numbers, I'll turn to Numbers 20 right quick, and we'll see why Moses said this in Numbers, the 20th uh, chapter. Why did Moses say that uh, he's not able, he's no longer able to go out and come in? If you look at Numbers, the 20th chapter, beginning at verse 7, uh, we will see why uh, this is. So he says here, you know, the Lord says to me, you should not go over to this Jordan. So this is why, uh, Numbers 20, verse 7. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and I will yield its water. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock, and give drink to the congregation and the animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord, as he commanded him. So Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, must we bring water for you out of the rock? So he was kind of striking out at them, like having a little fit of rage or anger. Then Moses lifted his hand and did what? Struck the rock. Not only did he strike it, but he struck it twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you should not bring the assembly into the land which I have given you. So Moses' anger cost him the promised land. Okay? Moses struck the rock twice, that's not what God had commanded him to do. God told him to do what? Speak to the rock. Just say rock, water come out, you know, whatever. God is the one who's sovereign over his creation. Uh, Moses speaks to the rock, and God causes water to come from there. Only God can do that. But instead, Moses lashed out at the people because, you know, <laughs> he was weary of them. They had made him weary and irritated like that. So he, he decided to do what? <clears throat> you know, strike the rock twice. And the water came out. God told him, because you did that, you cannot enter to the land. But back to where we are in this passage, this is why Moses said that. He's no, 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 not, he's no longer able to go in and come out. The Lord said to me, you shall not go over the Jordan. Okay? So those were the specific words that God uh, gave him. Now, there's a difference between you should not bring this congregation into the land and you should not cross over yourself. So God did allow Moses to go into the promised land, but not as a leader of the nation. Okay? 
because he passed the torch of leadership. But God made it more clear that Moses shall not go over the Jordan. So that was the clear indication that he could not cross the Jordan with them to go into Canaan. Okay, so that was the distinction there. Now, the thing is that this correction of Moses was hard because Moses had led these people for 40 years. You know, he led these people for 40 years, knowing that he was not going to be able to lead them into the promised land. Just think about that. But this shows you the faithfulness of Moses still as a leader of God's people, although he knew that he was not going to take them over to the Jordan still led them through the wilderness. He still gave them all the commandments that God had spoken to his people uh, through him as, as a mediator. He was, he was still faithful in doing that. He was still faithful in serving God, although he knew that he wasn't going to go to the promised land, that he wouldn't even go there. We're going to see later where God uh, allowed him to look over and see it. Uh, but not enter in, and we can only speculate and we're not going to do that, whether the Bible is silent or we're silent. But we can only speculate what Moses felt in his heart, knowing, you know, seeing that land flowing with milk and honey, thinking about all the covenant promises that God made to his people through him, and yet not able to go over to that. So that uh, object lesson there, I remember it was years ago, uh, maybe way or so years ago, I, I preached a sermon about uh, that passage in Numbers about uh, Moses' anger and how anger can cause you to lose God's blessings. And uh, it, it, was, it was about this, this uh, passage back in the book of Numbers uh, and looking at what Moses did and how his anger cost him God's uh, blessing of being able to go to the promised land and how um, Sometimes our anger, you know, the Bible tells us to be angry and sin not. For a long time, I thought getting angry itself was a sin until I heard a sermon about Charles Stanley. This was about dang, 20 years ago. I heard Charles Stanley uh, preach a sermon about he was going through the gifts of the Spirit in, in Galatians. No, it was Ephesians 5. It's the passage, Ephesians 4 28. Uh, be angry and don't sin. That's what it was. He was talking about anger and you know, this really opened my eyes to it, that anger itself is not a sin. Because God gets angry. God is angry. God gets angry at sin. And I learned by listening to him explain this, that our emotions are given to us by God. You know, some of his attributes are communicable, meaning that he gives them to us to share them with us. And some are incommunicable, those that he uh, reserves alone for himself. Anger is an emotion that God communicates with us. God is a God who gets angry. He gets angry at sin. He gets angry at uh, evil. And God gives us that emotion. So anger itself is not a bad emotion. But Paul, uh, with the Holy Spirit's leading, uh, laid basically the, the guardrails for it. He says, be angry and do not what? Sin. Okay? So there's righteous anger. Jesus was angry when he turned over the um, the, the, the tables of the money changers in the temple and said, this house should be a house of uh, prayer for all of God's people, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. So Jesus was righteously angry. David was David had righteous anger. He says, zeal for your house has consumed me. So 
They, they even have a holy zeal, a holy anger for God's house, for the temple of God to not be profaned. You know, when the Ark of the uh, Tabernacle was taken by the Philistines, uh, when, when uh, Saul was king, and, and, and David went to war, they went to war with the Philistines to get the Ark back. Why? Because David knew that the presence of God had left Israel because the Ark was in the hands of these pagans, and he wanted that Ark to come back into the temple to be to God's presence and be amongst his people because that's what the Ark represents. So that's what he meant by, you know, zeal for your house has consumed me. He had a righteous anger towards sin and towards uncleanness in God's house and among God's people. So that's a righteous anger. You can be, I get angry when I hear about abortion because that's a righteous anger. Babies being killed in their mother's womb. That's, that's something that makes me angry because you're, you're murdering your own child and the people actually think that's a good thing. So there are things that are, there are righteous things to get angry about. But sinful anger is sin that doesn't bring glory to God. It doesn't glorify God. And it can lead to even uh, worse consequences. A person shooting or killing someone out of anger. Crashes to somebody's car out of anger. Or, you know, whatever the case may be. Excuse me. Lashing out against someone in anger. You know, fits of rage, wrath, wrathful anger. Those things are sin. And that's what Moses did. Moses struck that rock not once but twice. First he spoke to the people wrong in a false way. God just told him to speak to the rock. Not give a little commentary before, before he, not put his little two cents in as he did. You know, Moses had to get his two cents in, right? You know, he got his two cents in, but then he struck the rock twice. And God said, no, that's unsafe, as you say in the military. You're not going in because you did not obey me. You profane me in front of the people by not doing what I asked you to do because the people heard God say that to Moses. So Moses was profaning God's name in front of his people. So what did God do? He told Moses, you won't be able to go in. So Moses says that to him. You should not go over. So who will go before them? Verse 3. The Lord. The Lord shall go in. Shall go before them. That's what the Lord said he would do. Because... Oh, yeah, I want to say this again about uh, Moses. This is something that I don't, I don't want us to miss also. That rock, water coming from that rock was a, a picture of, of Christ. It was pointing to Christ and the redemptive work of Christ uh, through that rock. Because Moses said, I mean, I'm sorry, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and 4, when he was talking about um, to not be tempted as Israel was. That's what we're talking about in the context of this chapter to the Corinthian church. Don't become idolaters like Israel did. First Corinthians 10 and 4, Paul said this, And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed by them. And that rock was Christ. So that rock that the water came from, that we see in Numbers 20, was a picture and a type of Christ. And that water that came out was spiritual drink. It was a type of spiritual drink. Because that water perpetually flowed for 40 years to the people. So they always had, there wasn't a one time event that, that they, they had to need water, right? The animals need water. They need water, their vegetation, and all those different things. So 
they, they had that water um, given to them. But what did Christ say to the Samaritan woman at the well? He said that he, if you drink from his water, you will never do what? You will never thirst again. So that, that's, that's, that's pointing back to Israel. That water made them thirsty. It didn't quench their ultimate thirst because they had to go to that water every day to get it. They had to go to that rock every day to get the water. And Christ said that if you drink from him, if you're in him, then you will never hunger or thirst again. So that's th this rock that Moses struck was pointing to Christ. So that was another thing that Moses did wrong is he defaced uh, the beautiful picture of, of Christ's redemptive work uh, through that rock. So that was another thing that he did wrong. And Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 and 4 that they would drink of him. And Jesus said this in uh, John 7 and 37. On that last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So that rock that Moses, that God was pointing Moses to, was pointing ultimately uh, to Christ. All Moses had to do was use the words of faith that God had given him to speak to the rock. He will be making this solemn speech to the nation at age 120. And what this also points to is sometimes we regret of sinful decisions that we make and the consequences of those decisions and the regret that can fill out our heart when we think about some of the decisions that we make. And the thing is, God still redeems because Moses is still counted among the faithful. Okay? Jesus was the greater Moses. Okay? Moses is still counted. Moses didn't go to hell. Okay? He, he, he was still counted among the faithful. But, despite that, he still has that, that, that shame of, of, of that moment that he had to deal with while he was on this earth. He still had to deal with that knowing uh, that that's the reason why, you know, if I only, if I only just obeyed God and spoke to the rock. You know, perhaps that's something I'm sure that went through his mind because he had 40 years to think about it. <laughs> you know, when he knew that, that that time was coming. So that's something to think about also. So he says in verse 3, the Lord your God himself will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall Dispossess them, and Joshua will go over uh, at your head as the Lord has spoken. So Moses had led Israel for 40 years. He was the only leader that most of these people had ever known. Remember, this was the younger generation that was crossing over. So he was the only leader that they had known. But the nation could be confident that they were going to have someone uh, to lead them over. So Moses and or Joshua did not have to be afraid of doing this. Because what does the Lord say? He says that he will be with them. First of all, he says, I will go, he'll go over himself before you. So God was going to go over before them, so they had nothing to worry about at all. He was going to destroy the nation so that Israel would possess them. 
and Joshua will go over at your head as the Lord has spoken, and the Lord will do them as he did to Sihon and all. Just as he did to those kings, he destroyed them. Then he said here in, at the beginning of verse 6, well, verse 5 says, The Lord will give them over to you, and you shall do to them according to the whole commandment that I have commanded you. What would they do? Dispossess them, tear down their idols and their high places, don't marry their women, sons not marry the pagan women, and ladies not marry the pagan sons. Do not worship, become idolaters as those pagans. All these different commands that we went through in this book, God told them not to do. But in verse 6, he says what? Be strong and courageous. We're going to see this in Joshua 1 and 9 when, when they go over. Uh, God's going to tell Joshua the same thing. Be strong and of good courage. So it says that be strong and courageous or of good courage as some translations say. Do not be in fear and dread of them. Why not? For, for means because. It is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. Although Moses was passing from the scene, God had not abandoned Israel. Moses was not irreplaceable. He was not indispensable. Okay, God was being with them. God was with them. Israel was going to be in good hands with or without Moses. Israel was going to be in good hands with or without uh, Joshua. No matter what, they were going to be in good hands. And what are some object lessons even to learn this? Again, the Lord is going over before them. He's going to clear the way. God is going to pave the path for them. All they have to do is go in and dispossess the people. He says, he will destroy the nations before you, verse 3. So that you shall dispossess them. So God was going to take care of the nations. All Israel had to do was what? Go in and dispossess them. Take over their land. Possess their land. Conquer their land. That's all they had to do. And as we're going to see again in Joshua, they do it. Okay? But God had laid the groundwork for them. He would destroy them like he did Og and Sihon. Take their land. Give them over to them. So God was going to hand these people to them on a platter. And he encouraged them to be strong and courageous. That's, that's the message to every Christian. That's the message to every believer in every time, in every day. In this context, it was, it was time for the nation to take courage in the Lord and do not fear and don't be dismayed. And for us as believers, the same thing. You know, I thought about the text message that Melissa sent today. I was so encouraged. You know, we, so, sometimes we, 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 we're not strong in the Lord. We try to be strong in ourselves. We can be strong in the Lord. God goes before us. We can be strong and we can be courageous. Who's one of those three uh, people uh, in the Wizard of Oz? Uh, you had the Scarecrow, the Tin Man, and then the Lion. Which one was supposed to be? Well, the courage. The lion, right? But he wasn't, was he? <laughs> the, the, the lion is like the king of the jungle, but in the Wizard of Oz, that lion was scared. He didn't, he didn't have any courage. 
the lion didn't have courage like he was supposed to. As Christians, we have nothing to fear in facing the world, in facing our enemies. Just as Israel is going to face their enemies, God told them, be strong. Why? Because they're already defeated. I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to defeat them like I did uh, Sion and Ah. All you have to do is go in there and possess. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and of good courage. And not only be strong, he gives a negative. Do not fear. But he gives a positive encouragement. Be strong and of good courage. And then he says, do not fear, nor be dismayed. Well, he gives us two positive and two negative commands. The negative is still the positive because he tells us what not to do. Don't be fearful. You know, we t- I talk about fear of man all the time. Fear of man is a snare. The Bible says the book of Proverbs. We should not fear people. People can do nothing. They can ultimately do nothing to us. They can't, they can't harm us in an ultimate way. Because as believers, we're in Christ. And there is nothing that any unbeliever, nothing that any system, or ideology, or any person on this earth can do to us. And they cannot take away what we have in Christ. They just can't do it. No matter what comes up against us. We can have courage because we know that we're in Christ. And that Christ keeps everyone we belong to him in. Christ keeps us ultimately protected. He told the disciples that in Matthew 10. Because he was about to leave them. And he knew what they were going to face when he left. So he gave them some instructions. Turn to Matthew 10 right quick as we tie this into our lesson tonight. This is one of my favorite discourses in the Gospels that Jesus gave to his disciples. It's Matthew the 10th chapter. It begins, you know, he gave them authority. He's basically uh, giving them authority as his messengers. And this is about their uh, mission to Israel. And also he was preparing them for worldwide mission among the Gentiles. And the characteristics that they needed. So, turn down to verse about, okay, verse 26. Look at verse 24, first of all. Especially before that, he talked about the persecution that was going to take place. Verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they are called the master of the house bills above, how much more would they malign those who are of his household? So, if they criticize Christ, how much more would they do his disciples? If they mock Jesus, how much more are they going to mock us? If they hate Christ, how much more are they going to hate us? That's what he's saying there. We should not be surprised. As Peter said, don't be surprised at the fiery trials 
which have come upon you. If they hate Christ, how much more are they going to hate his followers? He continues, man. What does verse 26 say? Somebody read that, those first few words. Don't be afraid. Uh, Emily, what does your translation say? Therefore, do not fear them. Okay. Uh, fearless. Harvey. The lowest. Okay. She says, have no what? Fear of who? Those who are going to persecute you. Those who are going to mock you. Those who are going to call you homophobic or transphobic or a bigot or all kinds of names. Have no fear of them. Why? For nothing is covered that will not be revealed, hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whisper, proclaim on the outside. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot heal the soul. They can't do anything to your soul. This takes biblical courage and biblical conviction to stand. I was talking to one of my uh, co-workers that I used to work with at the PNC Bank. Uh, I saw him at, at Rendition the other night. He was, a, he was part of St. Mark uh, United Methodist Church down in Golden Springs across the regional bank of Walden. He had been birth in years. Uh, you know, the, the Methodist Church is going through a split right now. Uh, the, the conservatives are splitting away from the larger United Methodist Church, and they formed the Global Methodist Church uh, denomination because the Methodist Church, you know, they believe in ordaining women pastors and just all this uh, sexual revolution stuff and what I did there talk about the LGBTQ and everything and the Methodist Church basically gone in that apostate direction. You got the conservatives that are not for that. So a lot of them are taking their churches out of the UMC but St. Mark and of course First Methodists up here decided to stay with that because First Methodists has a female pastor. Well, uh, they, they, they've gone far to now. Like a big old nice church down in Seattle. St. Mark, uh, the same thing. They're going to get apostate churches after a while. But Tony, he was a worship leader there. Tony's a, a, a good, solid brother. He, he said, he told me at that organization, he said, Ron, I have to take a stand. He told me. He, he started a church down in uh, Fair Lady, you know, strip mall with Domino Pizza is. Uh, you know, down on Fair Lady Knoxville. I said, I, I told him I saw sign that said Kiss World Global Methodist Church and I looked it up on Facebook. I said, I'm sorry, I saw your picture there, man. I said, you know, he, he, you know he, him and his wife uh, planted, planted that church, but he told me simply put at Edition the other night, he said, Ron, you have to take a stand. And I said, man, I, I'm so encouraged to hear that. I said, I wish more Christians did that. Because a lot of people being swept up by all this nonsense because what they fear. They're afraid. They're afraid of the name calling. He told me like 60 people have left that church to uh, go and join him. He wasn't trying to break up the church. He just he wasn't going to take the direction of the denomination was going because that church decided to stay in that mess and believe it and affirm all that, all everything that's against scripture. And you have people in that church that said, no. So they decided to take a stand and move out. 
it takes a lot of courage to do that. A lot of them have been prime members of that church for 20, 20, 30 years. But they took a stand. Why? Because they did not fear. They didn't have a fear of man. I'm sure it was hard because they wanted their church to, to line up with Scripture. That's why it was hard. But there's, there's going to come a point as believers on our jobs. We're family members. We're loved ones. We're friends. Well, we're going to have to take a stand and not have fear. And God was telling his disciples that here. Don't fear those who can kill the body. What's the worst they can do to you? Say something bad about you? That's the worst? Go on Facebook and do a rant about it? That's the worst they're going to do? And we're going to be afraid of that? Ostracized, unfriended, unfollowed on social media. I got, I've lost friends. Can I hurt that person? Yes. I'm not going to lie. But in the end, I'm going to stand for what's right. I'm not going to try to maintain friendships over a lie. I just, we have to stand on principle. It's not that I left my friends, my friends left me. I didn't leave them. I still love them. They're the ones who decided to unfriend me on Facebook, unfollow me on Instagram, block me on Instagram. They're the ones, I didn't, I didn't block them. <laughs> but we still have to take principled stands and not have fear. God was telling his disciples that. Now let's turn back into what we're talking about as far as uh, Israel. The whole fear thing. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body but not kill the soul. Rather, fear him, God, who's ultimately over your soul. Because he can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one that will fall to the ground apart from your father? Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more valuable than two sparrows. For everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father. For whoever denies him before men, that means denies salvation, denies Christ as Lord and Savior. Guess what he will do? He will deny them before God the Father and his judgment. So why are you going to fear people if you're not going to stand before men? We need to be more concerned about how we're going to be, how we're going to be denied by Christ, not by people. Not by a, another image bearer of God, but also another person in the flesh just like us. Another person just like us who has an appointment with them and after their judgment, just like us. No one is exempt from that. So why should we fear? Why should we fear people? Why should we fear man? It's a snare. It's a trap. Being a people pleaser is one of the worst places to be. You're never going to please people. You, you could be the nicest person in the world. If somebody may not like you, like you they may eat you. Nice. <laughs> you need to get an edge about you. You, you know, you're too nice. You're too sweet. You, you know, they'll think you're a pushover. If you're too nice, they'll say, man, he's too nice, man. He's just run all over me. 
for their manner. <laughs> You're not going to please me. So, looking back at our passage here, God is telling Israel, do not fear. Don't fear the enemies. Don't fear the Amorites and the Moabites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Canaanites. Don't fear them. Why? Because I am going with you. I am going before you. I am on your side. You have nothing to worry about, Israel. And people of God, we have nothing to worry about. Because God goes before us. And I love this last part of verse 6. Man, he will not do what? Leave you. Don't forsake you. We hear that in Hebrews 13 and 5. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And, and, and the writer of Hebrews 5 and 6 goes on to say, so that we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do unto me? That's Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Write it down, put it on your refrigerator. Have it in your car, dangling from your rearview mirror. Hebrews 13, 5 and 6, because that is what the Lord says to his people. We talk about covetousness. That was the context in which the writer was talking about this uh, verse. Hebrews 13. Mm-hmm. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That comes from Joshua 1 and 5 and also Deuteronomy. So that we can confidently and boldly say what? The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. There's that word again. What can man do unto me? That's a rhetorical question. The Lord is my helper. Since God would never leave us nor forsake us, we know that he's our helper and that we have nothing to fear. And we know that man can do nothing to us. Why? Because the Lord is our helper. Because the Lord will never leave us nor forsake us. That's working that backwards. What can man do to me when I would not fear? Because the Lord is my help. Because he would never leave me nor forsake me. What can man do to me? Nothing. There was a story of one of our uh, Christian martyrs. He was being boiled alive. They did some bad things to Christians back in the day. But he said, you can only kill me once. Kill me how you must. You can only kill me. You can't kill me twice. You can only kill me once. Kill me as you must. We should not fear. And that's what God was telling them. I will never leave you. So Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel. So Moses tells them the same thing. What? Be strong and courageous. For you shall go with this people to the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. It is the Lord who will go before you. He will be with you. Look at all this assurance. 
He will not leave you nor forsake you. Do not be, I'm sorry, do not fear or be dismayed. Man, this is so good. God is so encouraging. He's encouraging God, isn't he? Men have encouraged me to fight. Moses are such a blessing. Moses knew that Joshua might be waiting, but he encouraged him. He pushed him to trust in the Lord because Joshua was, was much younger than Moses. Joshua was of that young generation that was going in. So Joshua wasn't 120 years old. He was very young. Joshua was the man who was going to lead, but the work was the Lord. It was the Lord who was going to go for him. And look, as believers, just as Moses encouraged Joshua, we as believers are to encourage each other to be strong. Even if we don't know what other believers, other church members are going through, we can still say, be strong and courageous. I praise you today. Be strong in the Lord. We encourage each other in the Lord. We encourage, we encourage each other, hey man, God is with you today. Just a simple word like that, sometimes you can just say that. The Lord will be with you today. That's just yeah, you know, type of essay. Just say, the Lord is with you today, bro. Sometimes you say, man, I need to hear that. I need to hear that. Sometimes you've done that and someone says, man, I need to hear that today. Because many times we don't hear or we don't think that that's the case. So God encouraged Moses, I'm, I'm sorry, Moses encouraged uh, Joshua by saying that, the same thing that, uh, be of good courage. That God is with you. God does his work, but he does it through people. He was going to use Joshua to accomplish his work in bringing people over to conquer, to conquest the land, but he still needed the encouragement. So then Moses, he broke the law and gave it to the priests. And he put the law into the Ark of the Covenant. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant is where God's law was put. And the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence among uh, the people. So he gave a charge uh, to the priest. Every seven years, in the year of release at the Feast of the Tabernacle, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord, and they were to gather the people together, men and women. I'm kind of skipping through a little bit here. And the little ones and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord your God and carefully observe all the words of the law, that their children who are not known may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land which you cross the Jordan to possess. Now, the kings of Israel were to write their own copy of God's law, God's law and Moses did. Uh, the same thing. So they were to read this law every seven years. So part of the job of the Levites was to, to minister the word of God to the nation. That's what they were. They were like the, the teachers of the law to the people. They were responsible for the teaching of the law. The priests were responsible for the administration of the tabernacle. You know, all the sacrifices and all those things. The evening sacrifices, offering sacrifices, and everything. The Levites, their job was to minister the word of God to the people. They were scattered throughout the nation. So every seven years, 
they would have a public reading and explanation of the law of God. Now, we saw this. I don't know if you remember, we went through the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the eighth chapter, uh, after the law was given, Nehemiah called the assembly together uh, to read the word to uh, the people. Now, the first time this was done was in Joshua, the eighth chapter, where they, where they crossed over. And the next time, see, this is the thing. They didn't do it. Now, the next time Scripture chronicles it was in the book of Second Chronicles when Jehoshaphat uh, read uh, the law. Five, about 500 years later. Okay? And then Josiah comes along in Second Chronicles and the law is read again. Now, there may have been some readings in between those years. But, generally speaking, they were not recorded. So it's safe to assume that the law was not read in seven years. Why did God want the law read like that? So that they could be reminded. So that the children could be reminded. So that everyone could be reminded of God's law. God's requirements. God's commands. God's commands of blessing and curses. Now, some of the recordings were, again, hundreds of years apart of recording the scripture. But it is safe to assume that these subsequent recordings happened during uh, dramatic moments. Now, Nehemiah did it just about the exiles to come back and they rebuilt the temple and they built the wall, and the people, uh, they heard the law. The first thing they did was they wept. And they all repented. Okay, <laughs> they had a, a big prayer service. Then Jehoshaphat, during his reign, to his leaders to teach the cities uh, of Judah the law. This is in Second Chronicles 17. And then Josiah, Second Chronicles uh, 34. The king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah, the priests and the Levites, and all the people, great and small. And he read. In their hearing the words of the book of the covenant which the Lord had, which had been found in the house of the Lord. So think about that. It was found. So that meant that what? It was lost. No one knew where it was. That means that the word of the Lord, the law, had been what? Neglected. To the point where they didn't, they, it had to be found. There had to be a search for it. Between Jehoshaphat and Josiah, I think it was about a 250-year period. So that means that the reading of the word was what? It was neglected by the people. That it had to be found in the tabernacle, in the temple at, at that time. And what's the greater principle in this? God wanted them to read the word regularly, read the law. Remember, they didn't have printed press back then. Okay, the word this time was written on stone. Okay, the law was written on stone this time. They didn't have paper, papyrus, papyrus, papyrus. You know, at that time it was written on a rock. But every seven years, they were to read the word of the Lord to all the people, so that the, the children that were born. Years, years, also did. 
This reminds us of a few things. This shows God's priority in his people knowing his word and the importance of it. Just, just regular, you know, diet of God's word. And we're not justified by, by works, by, we're, not, we're not justified by how much we read our Bibles. But because we're justified by grace and faith, we do what? Read our Bibles. We read because we're justified, not in order to be justified. Because we're made right with God by, by the work of Christ, not by our work. But because of the work of Christ in us, we do what? We read scripture, we remind ourselves of God's word. That's why, you know, I do the reading challenges with our, our church. You know, just, you know, not mandatory because I can't make people do it. But just a steady diet of God's word, even if it's just a chapter a day, even if it's just a few verses a day, or whatever. Just reading God's word, keeping it fresh in your mind and, and in your hearts. And, and knowing God's word, seeing God's promises, being encouraged uh, in scripture, by scripture. But when we neglect it, we forget it. We forget it, we lose our desire for it, we lose our passion for it. That's what Israel did as a nation. As they got farther and farther away from this moment right here, the nation forgot God. They forgot the God who brought them out of Egypt. And you see it as you go through all these books that we've been reading. You have Ahabs and then that's why we have kings like Ahab and his wife Jezebel and all of the wicked kings of Israel. That's why we have them. Why? Because they neglected God's word. They decided to go forward headlong into paganism. And that's what Israel did. You're going to see that with the, with, uh, with the song that's coming up here as far as what's going to happen to them. So verse 14 and 15 says, The Lord said to Moses, Behold, the days approach when you must die. Call Joshua and present yourselves in the tabernacle of meeting so that I may inaugurate him. And Moses and Joshua went and presented themselves in the tabernacle of meeting. Now the Lord appeared at the tabernacle in a pillar of cloud, and the pillar of cloud stood above the door of the tabernacle. That was God's presence among them. This is basically Moses' retirement ceremony and Joshua's inauguration ceremony. That's what this was. And then Moses gave his song here in verses uh, 16 through 22. This is Moses' song. This is a song of warning. This warning is about a future apostasy that's going to take place. It says, Behold, you rest your fathers, and his people will rise. And play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them, and they will forsake me and break my covenant which I made with them. Then my anger will be aroused against them in that day, and I will forsake them, and I will hide my face from them, and they shall be devoured, and many evils and trouble shall befall them, so that they will say in that day, Have not these evils come upon us because our God is not among us, and I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they have done. That they have turned to other gods. So, whose fault was it? It was Israel's fault. 
They were going to turn to other gods. God was telling them to do that. Now, God wasn't consigning them to that. Israel still had a what? Choice. Because we looked at that in the last chapter. Choose what? Life and death or good and evil. Blessings and curses. Choose this day. Israel had a choice. They had a choice. They had will. So it says in verse 19, write this song and teach to the people of Israel, put it in their mouths, that the song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I brought them into the land flowing milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten, and are full and grown fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them. Guess what? They did. And despise me and break my covenant. When many evils come upon them in troubles, this song shall comfort them as a witness, for it will live unto God in the mouth of the offspring, for I know that they are inclined to be day before I have brought them into the land. And I swore so Moses wrote this song the same day and taught it to the people of Israel. This is kind of like that national anthem. That's kind of what this is. Strange national anthems right there. That's what it was. It was going to be the anthem of Israel as a witness against them. In their suffering, God had predicted their future apostasy. In verse 23, then he inaugurated Joshua and said, Be strong and of good courage, for you shall bring the children of Israel into the land in which I swear to them, and I'll be with you. Moses preserved the law. Verse 24 to 27. So it was when Moses had completed the writing of the words of the law of the book, when they finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant, saying, Take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. It may be there as a witness against you, for I know your rebellion and your stiff neck. But today, when I am alive with you, you have been raised against the Lord. And how much more after my death? So Moses had finished writing the basis of the first five books of the Bible and gave them to Israel. He says, put it beside. Because the Ten Commandments were placed inside of the Ark of the Covenant, but the book of the law was placed beside the Ark in the, in the uh, tabernacle. So this was a witness against them. In other words, you know God's laws, and you are charged to do what? Keep it. There are no excuses. If you fail to obey covenant, this law will testify against you. So it ends by saying, Gather to me all the elders of your tribes and your officers. that I may speak these words in their ears and call heaven and earth to witness against them. For I know that after my death and your children after the wealth of me will turn aside from the way that I have commanded you. And in the days to come evil upon you because you did by the Lord for both of them to perish in the work of your hands. So this is a sovereign way to end that from Moses, but 
warnings from God are always solemn. They're always serious. They're always bring, they should always bring sober reflection. Israel, when they crossed over the Jordan, almost immediately, they forgot about God. They started with Achan, the sin of Achan. And it continued. They failed to dispossess the land. And from the time that they conquered the land, until they were taken into captivity, they did not drive out their enemies. The enemies of Israel became a thorn in their side. And they just went further and further into paganism. Think about rebellion. The fault is always with us. It is not with God. It is always with man. Man's heart is naturally built toward rebellion against God. Except for the saving grace of God, there go I, and there go us. God's word even for Israel and for us, is, 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 is in essence a restrainer. It's like guardrails. You know, like in bumper car races, they, they, they don't, the, the tracks are not open on the side so everybody will fall off. You know, they have those guardrails on the bumper track so, so you won't hit it and tilt over. God uses his word, his commands, his guardrails for us to do what? To protect us from ourselves. God knew, because he's sovereign, he knew what departing from him would do for his people. So what did they do? What does man do in his sinful pride? He does it anyway. But you know what? Despite God telling them what they were going to do, he still commissioned Joshua to do what? take them into the land. God was still faithful to his covenant despite the future rebellion of his people. What did Christ do? Christ came into a sinful world where he lived a sinless life. He came into an imperfect world, dwelt among imperfect people, but yet himself he was perfect. He was without sin. Christ died for those of us, he died for those who didn't deserve his. We did not deserve for him to die for us. But guess what? He did. He died for us despite us. God gave this covenant promise to Israel to go before, to go into the promised land despite Israel's future rebellion. Christ died on that cross 2,000 or so years ago despite the fact that there were going to be many people who were going to do what? Reject him. But he died anyway. That's love. Would you die for a person who you knew would reject you? No, we wouldn't. That's why Christ is the God man. That's why his love is so great, and that's why we should always 
that can fool us. Paul said it most eloquently in Romans 5. While we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ still what? Died. He didn't wait until we got our act together because guess what? We can never get our act together. We can never get ourselves right with God. We can never act good enough to be accepted by God. While we were yet sinners. While Israel was yet rebelling, God still what? Fulfilled his covenant that he made with Abraham, that he made with Isaac, that he made with Jacob, that he made with the people in the wilderness. God still fulfilled his covenant to David that there would never fail to be anyone sitting on his throne despite David's sin in his family with his son Absalom rebelling against him and his sin with Bathsheba and having Uriah killed. Despite that, God still told David that your throne would be established forever, despite what his son Solomon did. Despite what Solomon's son did. Despite the kingdom being split into two, God still fulfilled his promise that David's throne will be established forever and it was fulfilled in Christ. That is the faithfulness of God. And we see that in this passage today. God's faithfulness to Israel, despite the fact that they are going to rebel against him. He still told Joshua what? Be strong and of good courage, for I am with you. Yes, these people are going to rebel. Yes, they're going to forget me. Yes, they're going to worship the pagans. But Joshua, be strong anyway. Be strong in me. Because I'm with you. That is God's message to his church, his people. Be strong, TLC. As a church, as individual members of this, this body of believers, be strong in the Lord. The Lord goes before you every single day. There's not a time. As Psalm 121 says, he who keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. God has never asleep at you. He's faithful. He was faithful to Israel despite their rebellion. He's faithful to us too. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your covenant faithfulness to your people and for your faithfulness to us. Bless us, Lord, strengthen us as we have heard from you tonight. Lord, help us to know that you are with us, that you will never leave us, that you will never forsake us. Help us to be strong and of good courage. Help us to not be afraid, to know that you are with us, that you will not abandon us, that you are always going to be there. And Lord, those of us who struggle with fear of man, we should not fear, Lord, because you're with us. You're greater than man. There's nothing that anyone can do to us. Lord, thank you for your word. Just encourage us tonight and to meet again on Lord's Day. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.